you wish to follow along with me in the scriptures, I'm going to read again from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, and I'm going to read the last verse of the 14th chapter and then the first six verses of chapter 15. 2 Samuel, beginning at 14. 33, and then I'd like to ask Neil Slater if he would lead us in prayer for God's mercy in this activity, this means of grace. 2 Samuel, chapter 14, verse 23, 33. So Joab came to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gates. And it was so that when any man had a suit which should come to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man who hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took hold of him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Let us pray. Give us wisdom from on high, O God, we pray. Amen. 
Amen. <clears throat> when I was converted, I'm going to say when I was being drawn to God, I don't know precisely, of course, when my heart was regenerated. I hardly know when I was actually converted, but I do know some of the results of it, and I experienced those. When I was converted, one of the things that the Lord used in instructing me and teaching me and guiding me and drawing me was that all of a sudden, if I can put it that way, I don't think it's exaggerated, all of a sudden, I wanted to read the scriptures. Now, it's not that I never read them, but I wanted to read them and know what they said and what God wanted me to know. And not only did I want to read the scriptures, but I was seeking out books to read from men that loved the scriptures, from men that knew the scriptures. And I began reading as I had never read before. I began a lifetime of loving to read. And what's interesting about that is that prior to that, I never really did care to read. I never cared about reading. If I read a little in the newspaper, it was, uh, it was uh, ex an exception. And surprisingly, I think, anyway, that my mother more than once, after my conversion, made the remark, David always liked to read. Mom, you don't even remember. <laughs> I didn't like to read. But one day in the early 60s, I don't remember how I came upon this book. I was attracted to it. This was 15 years before I was converted. I came across this book, and I, I've just learned recently that it was just published in 1960. Maybe I had some kind of a, an unhealthy uh, attraction to learn about the Nazis, about Hitler, about World War II. My father was involved in World War II. And I don't really know. I'm just speculating what the reason was, because I can't recall. But it was in the very early 60s, and, and this book was just, had just been published in 1960, as I say, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shire. It was an immediate bestseller. Well, maybe that was what helped to attract me to it, that I, I heard talk about it or something. There were one million hardcover copies sold in the first year, along with a million paperbacks. It, it was an immediate success in that sphere. But when I began reading it, and as I've already said, I really didn't care to read. I think the only book that I can recall reading prior to this was a little autobiography by Audie Murphy, the most decorated soldier in World War II, called To Hell and Back. And it was a very simple read, a very easy, Audie Murphy was a, quite a soldier, but I don't think he was much of an author. At any rate, it was a short, paperback and easy read. I began reading this Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and I couldn't put it down and I'm not saying that tritely as many. I couldn't put it down. It engaged me so much. It, it, 
startled me so much. I couldn't believe what I was reading. And what it was that I couldn't believe I was reading was how that Hitler got away with all this. How in the world? And that's, you may be asking yourself, why is David talking about Nazi Germany? Why is David talking about Adolf Hitler? Why is David talking about World War II and so on? Well, it's because when I read this and began studying this portion of Scripture in 2 Samuel 15, it just seemed like a duplication. A duplication. Of course, it's not a duplication. That'd be an anachronism. But Hitler was duplicating Absalom, if I can put it that way. The Munich Pact was signed by Germany, Italy, France, and Great Britain in September of 1938. Neville Chamberlain represented Great Britain. And in reference to this agreement, the great appeaser, as he most rightfully earned that title, the great appeaser, Chamberlain, had said, whatever the reason, whether Hitler thought he might get away with what he had got without fighting for it, or whether it was that, after all, the preparations were not sufficiently complete. However, one thing is certain. He missed the bus. Neville Chamberlain. William Shire, as the rise and fall of the Third Reich, suggests very powerfully, very powerfully, that Adolf Hitler did not by any means miss the bus. He did not miss the bus. This was the occasion, this Munich agreement or this Munich pact was the occasion when these powers, Germany, Italy, France, and Great Britain got together to give Czechoslovakia, or a big part of it, away, to give it to Hitler in 1938. Czechoslovakia certainly missed the bus. But Hitler got his way. It's in, in this book that I'm speaking of. Defines that and declares that in no uncertain terms. And again, I don't want to be repetitious, but I can't help it because that's really the thrust of this, is that I could not get over. When are they going to say no more, Adolf? You little paper hanger or whatever. No more, Adolf, you... Little corporal. Hitler did not miss the bus. Did Absalom miss the bus? The next few chapters are going to tell us that he certainly did not miss the bus either. Had they not each rightly understood the feelings of their intended foes? Did they not each play better poker? than their foes. They were both very confident, very confident that their opponents would not call their bluff. Hitler was bluffing. He didn't really want war in 1938 yet. So he was largely bluffing, but he had already bluffed before and was given that formerly demilitarized zone that he was never, was never supposed to have any armaments 
troops in it from the Versailles Treaty. He bluffed then, and here he is bluffing again. And it goes on and on. And that's what we're going to see in Absalom and in this, this narrative. They wouldn't call this bluff. Britain, France, wouldn't call Hitler's bluff. David wouldn't call Absalom's bluff. The motives were different, of course. The motives were very much different. But they were both very confident that their opponents would not call their bluff. The king kissed Absalom, and we might even say in a way that Chamberlain kissed Hitler. And how did that work for Great Britain? How did that work? And the world. And how did this kissing Absalom work for David? We can put it generally speaking, it worked the same as it had for Great Britain. Yes, you can come up with excuses. For David, you can come up with excuses for Chamberlain. And the rest of the world, the Western world, I suppose they would call it. Britain had just survived a terrible war, World War I. They had just come through that. It hadn't been that long. 20 years. Used to seem like a long time, didn't it? 20 years. It doesn't anymore, but it used to. But they had just survived a terrible war. And David had just survived, I use the term survived loosely, but he had just come through a terrible experience of wickedness, of sin, of repentance and forgiveness. He had just come through a terrible war, we might say as well. So yes, we can grant them some kind of excuses, but that doesn't justify their behavior. Britain, Britain's Neville Chamberlain, and David, their desire was peace at any cost. David wanted peace with Absalom because of his inexplicable love for the young man. Chamberlain wanted peace, of course, because he didn't want war. Their desire was peace, however, at any cost. But that's not true peace. That's not true peace at all. Here we see in one of the verses that we read, Absalom saying, oh, that I were made judge in the land. Well, what does that sound like he wants? Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man who hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. Unashamedly characterizing his father, and the king of Israel as unjust as not being a good judge and saying he would be better. It was pretty conspicuous. Absalom. And later Adolf Hitler doing the same sort of thing. The same grasp for power. In that respect, they each wanted the same thing. And Joab, as we saw... Two or three weeks ago, Joab was something akin to Hitler's chief of staff, his general. And we might say the woman of Tekoa was his 
minister of propaganda. Matthew Henry said, speaking of Absalom, and, and we do read that, that he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground. Others have done that, and it wasn't sincere. We know that, don't we? But Matthew Henry says he longed to see the king's face, pretending it was because he loved him, but really because he wanted an opportunity to supplant him. He cannot do his father a mischief till he is reconciled to him. This, therefore, is the first branch of his plot. This snake cannot sting again till he be warmed in his father's bosom. Matthew Henry nailed it there, didn't he? Well, listen to this comparative short paragraph by William Shire in that book I've already mentioned. Listen to what he says about Hitler. Hitler, with a show of deep humility, this was around 1932 when he's just beginning his machinations. Hitler, with a show of deep humility toward the president he intended to rob of his political power before the week was up, stepped down bowed low to Hindenburg, that's Paul von Hindenburg, General von Hindenburg, the present president or chancellor, or whatever his title was. He bowed low to Hindenburg and gripped his hand. There in the flashing lights of camera bulbs and amid the clicking of movie cameras, which Goebbels, that was, I believe, his propaganda minister, which Goebbels had placed along with microphones at strategic spots, was recorded for the nation and the world to see and to hear described the solemn hand clasp of the German field marshal and the Austrian corporal uniting the new Germany with the old. Uniting the new Germany with the old. Such a deal I have for you. Hitler is whispering, whispering in the ears of Germany. David should have known. David should have known what Absalom really wanted. Is there any way that he couldn't have seen that coming? Although his mind and his heart were in a fog, it seems, that perhaps he wouldn't accept it. He wouldn't admit to himself that my son doesn't love me. That's not an easy thing to do. Absalom was actually not all that subtle. What's subtle about killing Amnon? What's subtle about setting fire to Joab's fields? He wasn't subtle at all. Chamberlain should have known after all as well. Hitler published his intentions clearly in his autobiography. You've probably heard of that autobiography. He titled it Mein Kampf. Carol will have to tell me if I pronounce that right. But it's sometimes translated my struggle or my victory or my fight. <laughs> What's subtle about that? And he detailed what his intentions were. And in many cases, how he was going to achieve them. He told the world his design. 
And yet Chamberlain and Great Britain and France, the rest of the world, are looking the other way. America was guilty as well, looking the other way. While Hitler continues to advance his cause. And here David looks the other way. While Absalom's advancing his cause. In the same manner as Adolf Hitler. We need to learn the difference. We need to learn what accommodation is. And we need to learn what compromise is. And what the difference is between the two. And they kind of overlap, and it's not easy to recognize one from the other. To accommodate is to adapt, to do a favor for even, or to make space for. But it doesn't speak anything of giving anything away or giving anything up. It's simply to make room for, to make space for, to accommodate, so that both can, can get together without either one giving anything up. It's an accommodation. Compromise, on the other hand, is a settlement in which each side makes concessions. Or supposedly each side makes concessions. Czechoslovakia wasn't even given a chair at that meeting. And they were the ones that made the concessions, as it were, as, as it happened. Accommodation and compromise. We live in a society of compromise. And very little accommodating one another. Everybody is right and nobody's wrong. Can't we all just get along? I didn't realize that was a rhyme until after I typed it out. <laughs> Everybody is right and nobody's wrong. Can't we all just get along? That's our society today. And I'm segueing here to ecumenism. I think that's pronounced right. Ecumenism. And I'm referring specifically to something just a little over 20 years ago. Evangelicals and Catholics together. ECT it was called. Charles Colson. And a Roman Catholic prelate were the chief initiators of this. But what a movement they began. And let me ask you, if you've ever looked at this, what, what, con what concessions did they want us to make? Us being evangelicals, of course. And what concessions did Rome make? While we sit back and wait for Rome to make some concessions, we might consider what they would like us to concede which they would like the evangelicals to concede, and which in a way they did, as they made such ambiguous statements. But let me ask you, brother and sister, which one of the five solas shall we concede? Which one of the five solas would you concede to Rome? Because that's what they would like. That's what their chief goal is. Sola Scriptura? Scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola dea, gloria, glory to God alone. Which one would you be willing to give up? I frankly don't understand how any Protestant 
conservative Protestant could sign on to that and, not, and be blinded. But here we have David being blinded by his desire for peace with Absalom at any cost. Here we have these nations in the world being blinded, blinding themselves to what Hitler's scheme is. So I'm going to try to be charitable to some of these men, and part of that is not mentioning their names. But they were renowned Protestant, born again, as they say, Christians, signing on to this. Rome would not give anything up. If they had actually been willing to concede anything, they would have to give up they're putting tradition alongside a scripture. They're church fathers, the traditions, the, the, the uh, proclamations, the pronouncements of the popes and so on that they set alongside a scripture and in, and in fact, in their actual practice, they set them above scripture. Do you think that they're going to give that up? Do you think they have? No, they have not. They would have to cease putting works alongside faith in order to embrace faith alone. You think they're going to do that? They're going to give up confession in that little closet. They're going to give up penance. They're going to give up all these works that the priests assign the people to do. You think that Rome is going to give that up? You're as foolish as Chamberlain if you do. You're as foolish as David if you think they do. They will. They would have to surrender their works of supererogation as well. You know what that is, how that there are some saints, as they call them, that have done so many good works that they've got leftovers to give you if you need them. How foolish, how ridiculous. They're appealing to blind people. They would certainly have to stop putting Mary alongside Christ, the only mediator, and call her a mediatrix. They would have to stop that. And they would have to stop ascribing glory to their church, the only church. They would have to give glory to God alone. Do you think that they're going to do that? Well, if you have any thought that they're going to do that, you haven't been reading history and you haven't been paying attention even as perhaps Chamberlain wasn't paying attention, even as perhaps David wasn't paying attention. Maybe he was so busy with matters of state, he didn't smell the fumes from Joab's barley field. I don't know. But in November, only six years ago, another document came out from the same sources allegedly different from ECT, perhaps trying to make it look a little more palatable. However, it contains the same errors as ECT. The same errors regarding what a Christian is. And perhaps more to the point, the same errors regarding what the gospel is. People think they can get together with, with, with a people that have a... a, a a gospel that has been truncated and distorted and, and wrested from Scripture. 
and that they can sign on a dotted line, oh, we'll work with the, we'll work, we'll pick it, we'll pick at that courthouse with you. We'll send some people to that mission field with you. We'll walk hand in hand with you and make out like there's not really any difference between you and ourselves. This is only a rehashing of that ECT. It's only a rehashing of the same material with a new cover that may look a little different. But this has been the method of operation of Rome for millennia, and if, if not always, then never. It is most discouraging. I confess it is most discouraging to see among the signers supposedly Protestant Reformed believers of great stature among the churches signing on to that. What were they thinking? They signed their names on this document right along with right reverends. That should have been an alarm. Oh, this one's a right reverend. This one here is a most reverend. And they even had archpriests on there from some Orthodox church where they call some of their officers archpriests. What does that tell you? That man is an archpriest? Well then, what is Jesus Christ if that man is an archpriest? This is nothing new. This is nothing new. This decline, this downgrade. We've been hearing about that on Thursday nights. This, from sin, it just gets worse and worse. Until God has to bring a flood. It's nothing new, but that doesn't excuse it or justify it. That only makes it all the more frightening. 30 years before ECT, there was a breach in that book that Mark is looking at. Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's recorded there. There was a breach between David Martin Lloyd-Jones and John R.W. Stott. Stott was a representative Although he's a very popular writer, he seems to have lost his way if you look at his life. But there was a confrontation and a breach over what amounted to this same sort of issue. It had more to do with the Church of England. John Stott was a, a minister in the Church of England. You remember the Church of England, Henry VIII's church. But they had a, a, a conflict over this issue. That, that of a unity proposed. Unity regardless of doctrine. Regardless of truth, really. Lloyd-Jones stated his views, his position in a message at, at this Second National Assembly of Evangelicals in England. And after he was through, stopped being the moderator of this meeting, stood up unexpectedly and declared a rebuke. He rebuked MLJ's refusal to endorse such an ecumenical agreement. Right in front of all those at this meeting, a great number of ministers of independence, of Anglicans, and so on. Right in front of them, Stott rebuked Lloyd-Jones for this position. Lloyd-Jones 
explanation was very simple and right to the point. And he said very succinctly, quote, here is the great divide. The ecumenical people put fellowship before doctrine. We as evangelicals put doctrine before fellowship. Now, I think all of us know what we think about fellowship. It's in our name. What we think about communion, it's on the table. What we think about fellowship, we, we embrace it, of course. We hold it very high up. While Rome holds the host up for people to bow down to, we hold up fellowship in our doctrinal position and views. But we're not going to put doctrine at large against it. We're not going to put it above doctrine. We're not going to put feeling above truth. And we will accommodate feeling. And we will accommodate these things, but not compromise. Yes, very sadly, ECT, as one has written, was a, there was a fatal flaw in the document and the fatal flaw is its assumption that a common mission is possible in spite of doctrinal differences. Are the essentials of the gospel being relegated to secondary status, one asked? It's more important to get missionaries out in the field. It's more important to have this program and that program. Never mind the truth. Never mind that we're twisting the gospel. And as I've already suggested, sadly, it's not only Rome. Not only Rome that has done this and that is doing this. There was a downgrade controversy in Spurgeon's time, really over the same. The dilution of doctrine. The watering down of truth. Spurgeon stood up at a Baptist meeting. I think there were several hundred at this meeting. Several hundred representatives of churches. Several hundred ministers there. And they voted... Spurgeon was standing for the truth and they voted on this proposition regarding this watering down and so on. I don't remember exactly, but I think there were seven or less that voted on the side of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. His secretary, biographer, I think his name is Pike, said that he believed, he's believed for a long time after Spurgeon's death, that that's what really brought about the death of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That he was so discouraged by that. So broken down. But there were downgrades then. There was another downgrade, if we can use that term again. And if you want to read about Lloyd-Jones, Ian Murray, his former assistant pastor in, in London, wrote that two-volume biography. And he also wrote a book about Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy. Read those books if you want some good reading and if you want to learn how these things can happen so that hopefully, prayerfully, they don't happen to us. They don't happen. You think it wouldn't happen to us? Let him that thinketh he stand take heed. I submit that there were a lot of people in these days that didn't think it was going to happen to their association or it wasn't going to happen to their church. It wasn't going to happen to them. And when push came to shove, they caved in. In 1924, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, there were a large group of ministers of that church 
that signed the Auburn Affirmation. 1,274 ministers of that body signed this. And this affirmation not only challenged the right of the highest body of the church, the General Assembly, to impose the five fundamentals as a test of orthodoxy. I don't have anything to say about that. That's a Presbyterian thing. But the fact that, that these men were opposing, 1,274 of them in that meeting opposed the five fundamentals as a test of orthodoxy. Now, whatever you want to say about, about meetings like Presbyterians, Presbyteries, where they examine men for the ministry and so on. Again, I'm not touching that, but I'm just saying here, there was a watering down taking place of the doctrines of grace. Let's use that term because that's what we're talking about. The inerrancy of the scriptures again in the forefront. And they said the Bible is not inerrant. The supreme guide of scripture interpretation is the spirit of God to the individual believer. Oh, whatever I think it means, that's, that's what it means. You've heard that, and it's not new either. And surrendering the inerrancy of Scripture opens the doorway wide for every other error. Error about the birth of Christ. Error about the substitutionary atonement of our Savior. Error about His resurrection. Error about His miracles. Ecumenists hold unity in a place of superior importance to the essentials of the faith. We can sit and wrestle and hassle over what the essentials are, but I don't think I've listed anything here that we don't believe and agree are essential to the gospel, essential to the truth. And these ecumenists will put unity in a place of greater importance. And they're around us today. The downgrade the Auburn Affirmation, Lloyd-Jones' struggle over ecumenism in the 60s, evangelicals and Catholics together in 1994, and then this Manhattan Declaration that I mentioned in 2009, this new cover on this ECT, Manhattan Declaration. You've got to call it the Manhattan Project. Accommodation or compromise, which is it going to be? Pragmatism or principle? Pragmatism, testing the validity of all concepts by their practical results. In other words, if it works, do it. And in the case of the Auburn Affirmation, signatories, whatever works, as long as we retain our unity. In writing, they had that. Retain our unity in our liberty to believe whatever we want. Principle, on the other hand, is a fundamental truth, a law, and so on, upon which others are based. So what's it going to be? Accommodate to try to make room? We can make room. We don't cast out everyone that's a Roman Catholic as an unbeliever. We don't cast out charismatics just because they believe they need to speak in tongues. We don't cast them out. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes the difference.
but not compromise. A settlement in which each side makes concessions. And as I've already pointed out, Rome doesn't make concessions. They make something up to look like it, but it's not a concession. Who cares if they let the people have the Bible in English or in their language when they don't encourage them to read it anyway? And when the people still believe that they have to go to the priest to find out what everything means and what God wants them to do. Brothers and sisters, the believer cannot make concessions to God's truth. And it is certain that God will never make any concessions to his truth. And we need to strive and struggle and fight the good fight and stand firm and having stood to stand, as Paul says, on the truth, on those old paths, as Jeremiah writes, as God writes to Jeremiah. We need to stand on those and not be willing to surrender them, not be willing to give them up because God has given us a new heart and we love God who first loved us, and we love Jesus Christ, who first loved us. We can't have anything to do with anything that smacks of ecumenism. Because there isn't any such thing offered that doesn't require us to make concessions to the truth of the truth. However, we now however, have the privilege to enjoy our own unity in the truth around the table of our Lord. Here's real communion. Here's real, if we, if we have to use that word, ecumenism, the people of God coming together around the table of our Lord around the same truth. We have the blessing by God's grace of true unity in the truth of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul said, as you well know, in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. I'd like to ask Neil to help me serve the elements. Whichever side you
O Lord our God, we give thee thanks and praise for this blessed means of grace whereby we may not only remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his love for us, but we may express our love for him that we might be caused, O Lord our God, to reflect upon that love and the action that it called him to do, him to take. And our Father, we pray that thou would help us to commune with him and with one another. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, the bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? Let us partake. Paul added, the cup of blessing which we bless, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not communion of the blood of Christ? Let us partake. O Lord our God, we thank thee for these symbols that do indeed remind us of what it cost Christ to satisfy thy justice. O oh Lord our God, infinite eternities would have been required of us and still we never would have satisfied thy justice. We thank thee for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee for this communion with him through this means that has been provided by his grace, his love for us. Father, we do ask that thou would bless the word that has been declared and spoken and that thou would bless this preaching of the word as it were through these symbols and that thou would grow us in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Build thy church. Build us up individually. Build us up corporately, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you turn in your hymnals to number 230? Number 230, we'll be singing the last line. Would you stand with me, please, to sing this parting hymn, as it's called in the Gospels, after the institution of the Lord's table. The last line, number 230. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. The whole earth let his glory fill. Amen. So let it be. Please remain standing for the benediction from Ephesians. In the last two verses, Ephesians 6, 23 and 24. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Sam. Feeling all right? <laughs>